so there we hear it, right? <laughs> He's telling them what's going, what's going to happen, and they're like, we don't know. We don't understand. Now, if you're here for the early service at 6.30, we were in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12, and we were talking about, you know, I remember. And so that's what the women were doing. And here we're going to see that the disciples and, and the women that were included in that as well were like, I understand. We're going to see how that plays out this morning, but... As we think about that, I want to read you this story. Patsy Claremont beautifully and movingly portrays the reality of recovering from grief. I quote her words because they are so strongly and lovingly written. And um, then he begins to quote. We buried my friend's 26-year-old son last week. An accidental gunshot took Jeff's life. We have more questions than answers. We We are offended at people who have all the answers and no experience with devastating loss. I watched the heart-wrenching scenes as the family tried to come to grips with their tragedy. I can still hear the travailing of the mother's anguished heart. I can still see the wrenching of the father's grief-worn hands. I can still feel the distraught sobs that racked the sister's body as I held her. I can still smell the hospital and the funeral home. Memories march before my mind like soldiers, causing me to relive the agony. If it is this difficult for me, Jeff's godmother... How much more magnified it must be for his birth mother, I can't imagine. As I watched Jeff's mom, Carol, the week after his death, I observed a miracle. I saw her move from despair to hope, from franticness to peace, from uncertainty to assurance, from needing comfort to extending it. I witnessed a mom face her worst nightmare and refuse to run away. Instead, she ran to him, capital H. When grief knocked The breath out of Carol, she went to the breath giver. I watched as the Lord placed his mantle of grace around her and then supported her with his mercy. The grief process has just begun for Jeff's loved ones. The Lord will not remove his presence from the Porter family, but there may be moments when uh, he will remove their awareness of his presence. That will allow them to feel the impact of their loss. For he knows it would be our tendency to hide even behind his grace to protect our fragile hearts from the harsh winds of reality. He offers us refuge, but he also promises us wholeness. Wholeness means we are fully present with ourselves and with him. Therefore, we have to own our pain. If we do not, part of who we are, we must either shut down, avoid, or deny. That would leave us estranged from ourselves and divided in our identity. Also, we would never heal in a way that would allow us to minister to others. The death of Jesus Christ left his followers devastated with grief similar to the Porter families. They had lost their best friend, their leader, and their life's goals, hopes, and dreams. All meaning had disappeared from life. Meeting the resurrected Christ gave them the assurance and power they needed to recover from their grief realistically, regain their wholeness, and renew their commitment to the goal Christ set before them. We have trouble feeling the same grief and loss the disciples felt at Jesus' death, but we can feel the glory of his resurrection and the joy of being part of his goal for living and for dying. We're going to see how that plays out this morning. And They they needed to remember, they needed to understand um, all of Scripture, and we're going to see how that happens uh, with them. Now, when I started uh, playing guitar way back in high school, um, I went and took lessons uh, for a little while, uh, and it taught me how to do scales, which I don't really, really 
remember those anymore, um, but also how to do chords. And it was really awkward when I first started trying to put my fingers in the positions that they needed to be for these different chords. You know, it just felt weird until I started playing more. And so that I could get my hands and my fingers to be on a D chord or a G chord or a C chord or an A chord or an A minor chord or an E minor, you know, whatever it was. And it took me a while just to learn those chords. But then it it took me a little bit longer uh, after I learned these different chords that I needed to learn how to transition between those chords so that I could play a song, right? So now I'm learning even more. I'm trying to understand all of this and and make it all work. And so um, when... uh, when we moved to California, um, I'm the worship leader there said, are you familiar with alternative chords? And I was like, no, tell me about those. And so um, he taught me how to do some alternative chords that come up in a lot of worship songs. An E, an A, a B, and a C sharp minor. Now, here's a regular E there. The alternative is here. Sounds the same, right? It's supposed to. Now the A is here, here's an alternative A. Now I'm gonna explain why this is important in just a minute. Now um, here's this, um, a B, this is a regular B down here. And I have a hard time playing that one. Here's the alternative. And then C sharp minor is pretty much the same. Um, it, you bar chord it as the original, and then it, you just take the bar away, so. So anyhow, this was, which was pretty cool because um, I was like, it's really hard to play like the song Almighty at the very beginning because it goes B, E, B, E, E, B, E, B, E, A. And it goes really quick. And so it's really hard to go from this bar chord here to here. So that, but when I do it with the alternative chords, it's a whole lot easier. So... So I'm not moving my fingers much. They're pretty much in the same place. I'm moving maybe up or down a little bit. And so it makes it a whole lot easier to play that song. You have no rival. You stand alone. The heavens worship before your throne. There is no one like you. You have no evil. Your kingdom drop down there for the E suspended. Do you hear the difference between that? There's E suspended and here's E. I don't, ha- I don't have an alternate chord for that one. Um, but you see how it's easier to transition when I have those alternate chords. And so I finally got it. I was like, now I had to retrain my brain from the original chords to how to do these alternate chords. But boy, once I learned it, and I got, I got it, I understand. It was so much easier to play these worship songs. And I can't tell you how many different songs have those four or five chords in them. And so, boy, that just transformed uh, my playing, made it so much easier. And so um, when I think about this, how many of us, you know, say we struggle with math, right, to understand math? How many of you say, yeah, math's not so easy? Um, how many of you have your nine times tables memorized? Do you have them memorized? Yeah, I mean, growing up, you had to learn them, right? Some of you are like, never learned them, still don't know. I can't, nine times nine, have no idea. 
I don't know what that one is. What, how would you feel if I taught you a trick today to learn your nine times tables? Do you know it? Some of you already got it. Why don't you hold your hands up like this for me with your fingers extended? You see it. For those of you at home watching online, you'll see it up there. But um, here's an easy way to remember your nine times table. So when you say one times nine, you just drop the first finger. And that leaves how many fingers left? Nine. So two times nine, so you go one, two, and you drop that second finger. <clears throat> so you have a one and eight. That's 18, right? Okay, so let's uh, three times nine, so one, two, three, drop that one. So we have two and seven, it's 27, that's your answer. Can you do the next one? Nine times four is 36. Nine times five is, nine times six is, oh, you guys are getting it. Nine times seven, 63. Nine times eight is 72. I can't keep that finger down very well. <laughs> nine times eight is, did I say nine times nine? Sorry. Nine times eight is 72. Nine times nine is 81. And then nine times 10 is, not, you should know that one. But isn't that cool? So now when you're, you're doing math, the nine times table, you got it down, right? You, you understand, right? How many of you struggle with the number of months in each year or and number of days in each month? You got it? Some of you have a little uh, rhyme that you do. I had never figured that one out. I could never remember it. If you put your hands like this and you count your knuckles and then the valleys between your knuckles, January has 31 February has, you know, weird, it's 28 or 29 in the fleet year. March has 31, April 30, May. Th and then when you get here, you notice that you're, you have two knuckles that are high. So you have January, February, March, April, May, June. July and August both have 31, September, October, November, December. Did you ever realize that? Learned that when I was studying about mortgage and how to do mortgages. I was like, that's the best thing ever. Because I, I can't do the rhyme. I don't remember the stupid thing. But there you go. So if you need to remember how many days, except for February, all the other ones have 31 or 30, okay? And, and your knuckles are together in the middle there. Anyhow, you didn't know that you were going to learn so much on Easter Sunday morning, did you? Um, I guess that uh, most of us have memories of struggling to understand something, right? Something we just couldn't quite get a, a grasp on. and It may have taken several people... Uh, multiple times explaining it to us in various ways before we got it. But we, once we got it, we were able to say, I understand. And we're going to see how that plays out this morning. The women that went to the tomb early in the morning and the apostles and disciples that were gathered together in Jerusalem did not have a resurrection mindset when it came to the first day of the week after Jesus' resurrection. Or crucifixion, I mean. They had not fully understood Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament about his purpose on earth. And what was going to happen to him. So they were not expecting him to rise from the dead on the third day. After his resurrection, though, Jesus did something supernatural for them that enabled them to understand the scriptures, and it transformed them all. This transformation is what motivated them to preach the gospel to the nations. We can experience the same transformation today. Through the Holy Spirit that lives within each follower of Jesus Christ, we have the same power as the apostles and disciples had. And we're going to learn from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49, this big idea today, that understanding God's word empowers us to witness. Empowers us to witness for Jesus Christ. 
And so as we think about that this morning, let's just commit it to the Lord in prayer and ask him to come and just illumine our minds and open our minds to his word. Lord, we come to you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit living within us to help us understand your word. And I pray today that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us for this time, that we might understand and apply your word to our lives today. That, Lord God, we would be transformed by the gospel that we would share what we've learned with those that we come in contact with. And so, Lord, would you come now by your Holy Spirit? Would you speak your words through your servant? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at two things today, physical proof and intellectual proof. That's what Jesus is giving to his disciples here. The physical proof comes in verses 36 to 43. And so let's look at those verses together, uh, if you would. God's word tells us this. While they were still talking about this, and we're going to tell you what that is in just a minute, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So while they're still talking about this, we have to go back to verses 13 to 35 to understand what they're still talking about. These verses share the story of the two believers who encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus. If you remember, they're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus when Jesus began to walk and talk with them. Jesus wanted these two men to express openly what they were thinking and feeling about his death and burial. So he acted as though he wasn't aware of everything that had just happened in Jerusalem. After hearing their hearts, Jesus began to use Scripture to explain that everything that had happened over the past several days had been foretold by Moses and the prophets. And the two disciples asked Jesus to stay with them when they arrived in Emmaus, which he eventually agrees to do. And as they're sharing a meal together, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus, right? But they don't get a chance to talk to him because he just disappears. And so they like, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was talking to us and, and opening scripture to us? Like, this was amazing. How did we not understand and see that this was Jesus at that point? And so they returned to Jerusalem immediately. They found the other disciples, and they told them what, had had, what they had experienced. And they were telling these two disciples, well, Jesus appeared to Peter as well. So this is what they're talking about. This group of disciples are talking about when Jesus appeared to them uh, uh, and what took place. And as they're talking about this, as this is happening, Jesus supernaturally appears to them. He stood among them and greeted them with shalom. Now, this just takes us to our first principle that we see in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. The disciples were gathered together behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. John tells us that in his gospel, chapter 20, verse 19. Jesus didn't have a key, and he didn't need a key. He was able to supernaturally appear to them. Now, we don't know exactly how he did it, but we know that he did it because he's all-powerful. And this principle and truth should give us hope as we face life's struggles. The disciples were experiencing fear because of the political and religious atmosphere of their culture. Some of us can definitely identify with the disciples, right? Because right now we're struggling and experiencing fear because of the political and religious atmosphere in our culture. 
hasn't changed much, has it? <laughs> Over 2,000 plus years. Maybe our fear is centered around our health with the coronavirus and the vaccine or some other health issue. Perhaps our fear and anxiety stem from financial struggles as a result of the coronavirus or the loss of a job. There are those who are experiencing fear, anxiety, and depression due to the loss of a loved one or a broken relationship. And the writer of Hebrews tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. He's talking about Jesus there. Like Jesus understands, he can sympathize with the fear and all that we're going through because he's experienced all of that. The temptations that we have, he understands because he was tempted. And so we have this great high priest who's interceding for us before the Father, and he knows what we're going through. And so we can rejoice in that fact today. He's able to sympathize with us through our weaknesses, through our heartbreak, through our fears, through our anxiety and depression. He's not only able to sympathize with us, but he's able to do something about it because he is all-powerful. That's why we turn to him. That's why we cry out to him. That's why we worship him uh, and to these answered prayers because he's all-powerful and he's working and moving and doing incredible things. He's waiting for us to sacrifice our independence and self-sufficiency and rely completely on him. We do that by crying out to him. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 tell us this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love this passage of scripture. If I... The promise is this. If I cry out to God with, with my concerns, if, if I bring my petitions and prayer requests to him with thanksgiving, saying, God, I don't understand why this is happening, but you are all powerful. You're in control. He's going to give me some peace that I can't even understand. And that takes us to our first next step. It's this, that we can recognize Jesus' omnipotence by crying out to him with my fears, concerns, and anxious thoughts. Maybe that's right where you're at today. Maybe you're saying, ah, that's the step I need to take today. I need to recognize Jesus all-powerful. All that leads us to the second principle, too, in that Jesus' presence brings peace. That's what he's saying to his disciples here, peace. It's going to be okay. And when we cry out to God and present our requests to him with thanksgiving, then we'll be able to experience his peace. It's a peace we cannot understand because it's supernatural. It comes from a source outside of ourselves. I've experienced it when I've gone through difficult times and I can't explain the feeling of peace when I should be experiencing a churning in my stomach and an unrest. And yet there's peace because I've given it to the Lord. Perhaps there are those of us here today that have experienced God's peace that doesn't make sense to our finite minds. And we can rejoice and worship the Lord for providing his peace. Now it appears as though the disciples were not experiencing peace though. We see their reaction. The disciples... Uh, uh, fears are elevated. They're terrified and thrown into fear. They're all, uh, already fearful and on alert because of the Jews. And now someone or something has gained access to their secure location, right? <laughs> that would make you feel even less comfortable. Like, wait a minute, we had the door locked and th this dude just shows up. Like, right in the middle of, of, of all of us standing here. And so they're, they're thinking, the only way this happens is it's got to be a ghost, Right? Do you have any ghost stories? I was a, I don't remember how old, eight, ten, somewhere in there, living over in Shippensburg. 
in the Parsonage for Prince Street at the time. I was already wearing glasses. I started wearing glasses in like second grade a long time ago. And one night I'm laying in bed, and my brother and I shared a room. He was fast asleep. He didn't know anything was going on. I'm laying there, and I'm looking at the doorknob on our door, and it's moving. It's twisting. I just know it is, right? And I'm trying to build up all this courage to, like, walk out the door to go to my parents' room. But I'm so scared to death. I don't know what to do. So I'm laying there, and I finally get up enough courage. I didn't walk. I ran past the door and got to my parents' room, and they came over and looked at the doorknob, and it wasn't moving. Now, I think my eyes were playing tricks on me because my eyes are pretty bad. Uh, I don't see very clearly without contacts or glasses on. So, But I think that's what was going on that night. Now, my sister, on the other hand, has always been attuned to spiritual things. And I can't remember if I was in college at the time or Judy and I were already married at this point. I, I can't remember. But um, she told us about the times as a child growing up that the grim reaper would stand at the foot of her bed. And we're certain it was a demon that she was experiencing, but she's always been attuned to these spiritual things. And it's like, yeah, there's crazy stuff going on, these ghost stories. But the spiritual realm exists, doesn't it? There's angels, there's demons, they exist. Somebody, it's time to wake up. <laughs> so. so since the disciples had not understood Jesus' teaching about his resurrection, they were not expecting him to show up in person. So their assumption was that this was Jesus' ghost. And Jesus realized what they were thinking, so he asks them a question and then gives them two physical proofs that he is real, that he's alive, that he has been resurrected. The first question is this, why are you troubled, which means frightened, and why do doubts rise in your minds? And here it really should be translated hearts. That was the seed of their emotions. That's what they believed in the New Testament times, first century. If they had understood Scripture and Jesus' teachings, they would not have been frightened or had doubts. They would have been celebrating Jesus' appearance, right? If they really remembered, and if they really understood Scripture and what Jesus had taught them, it meant that he was alive. They should have been celebrating this. That Scripture had been fulfilled. That Jesus had defeated sin and death. God's plan of redemption for humanity had been accomplished. And yet they're like, this must be his ghost. This is weird. And perhaps there are those here today who are afraid of death and or have doubts about life after death or about who Jesus is. But the gospel writers and the New Testament writers tell us who Jesus is. John does an incredible job in his gospel. He says that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life. Man, John just packs it full. And then Paul just goes on and he says, He is the stone the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. And salvation only comes through him. And Jesus accomplished all of this through his death, burial, and resurrection. So we don't have to fear death or have doubts about life after death because Jesus has defeated sin and death. We may still have to experience physical death, but eternity with Jesus will far outweigh that experience. Physical death for followers of Jesus means eternal life with him in a perfected body. Boy, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait for that perfected body, I'm telling you. You can have assurance about life after death because of Jesus. 
But first we have to admit that we're a sinner. We have to cry out to God and say, God, I've done wrong things and I'm sorry. And you may be sitting here today or listening online today and you're going, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't think I've ever done anything really that bad. But God's word tells us that if we just fail at one of the Ten Commandments, as though we've broken all ten. So let's just review those a little bit. One of the Ten Commandments says that we're not supposed to lie. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today, but you just think about it in the quietness of your own heart. I'm guessing most of us have done that. We've lied. So guess what? We've broken all the rest of the nine. His word also says that we shouldn't steal, and that could be just taking something small that didn't belong to us. Most of us will say, yeah, I probably did that at some point in my life, took something that doesn't belong to me. That's just two of the ten. Here's the third one. Have we ever uh, used God's name as a cuss word? Smash your finger with a hammer? <laughs> Something else, you get angry? And that's called blasphemy? And it's like we're not supposed to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. That's three. I'm guilty of all three of those. Man, we could just keep going, right? It says, do not murder. And they're like, oh, I'm good on that one. I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. And then Jesus says in the New Testament, but if you are angry with someone in your heart as though you murdered them, man, Okay, that's four. And we could keep going, right? Realizing that we don't, we don't even have to break one. We probably broke all of them. And so we are sinners. God's word tells us that. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one that is exempt from sin. We're all born with a want to and a desire to have our own way. And then God, because he's holy and he is a righteous judge, he has to punish sin. And he tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It's not a physical death because none of us would be here because we're all sinners, right? We just talked about that. So if we're all sinners, then the wages of sin is death. It's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God because of that darkness of sin in our lives. And so first we have to admit to God, I'm a sinner. Maybe you're realizing that for the first time today. The second thing is we have to believe in who Jesus is and why he came to earth. Paul does a great job to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses um, 3 and 4. He says how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This was foretold hundreds of years before. And then he was buried and he came alive again the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. And we have to believe in who he is and what he came to earth to do. Third, we have to choose to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Do you understand that today? Godly sorrow is like, I'm, I'm actually sorry that I broke God's law, that I, that I sinned, I did something wrong. Worldly sorrow is this, I'm sorry that I got caught. There's a difference, right? I was really having a good time doing that wrong thing, and I would like to keep doing it if I wouldn't have got caught. But I'm just sorry that I got caught. But godly sorrow is like, hmm, I don't ever want to do that again. And that kind of sorrow leads to repentance and salvation. Repentance is intentionally and purposely turning away from sin and toward righteousness. And so the second next step today might be for you, and it's to choose to repent of my sins and turn to God for his salvation. Man, if you're doing that today for the first time, welcome to the family of God. I'd love to talk to you about that. 
So make sure to put your information on the front of that communication card. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can claim the promise found in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? As his child, he promises to never leave us, to never turn his back on us and walk away. He's always there, right there with us. He is omnipresent. Jesus provides two physical proofs to ease the disciples' fears and doubts. First, his body, and then food. You see these nail marks in his hands and feet. He says, I have flesh and bones. Touch me. I'm real. I'm alive. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones, but I do. This first proof didn't seem to convince them, probably because they were in shock. They were so happy to see Jesus alive, but they were struggling to understand how it happened. And then he's like, see, I'm alive. Touch me. They're like, oh, man. Hold on, we're trying, to, <coughs> we're trying to figure this out. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Someone coming back to life on their own. Now, of course, they'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus and others from the dead, but that was different. Jesus was there. He was the one with the power, and, and he was raising people, you know, bringing them back to life. But here Jesus is, and nobody like laid hands on him or prayed for him. Or did anything. He just comes back to life. This never happened. And so they're struggling to understand that. And then he, he says, well, while the di- disciples are trying to wrap their minds around what they are seeing, Jesus asked them for something to eat. This is part of a second proof. A ghost was not going to be able to take something tangible, solid, and eat it. So he says, Give me, do you have something to eat? They're like, well, we got broiled fish. He's like, great, let me have some. And he proved that he was alive by taking the broiled fish and eating it in their presence. And Jesus provided physical proof on the day of his resurrection that he was real. He was alive. He said, look at my body. I have flesh and bones. Give me something to eat. And at a later time, he provided intellectual proof also. Look at verses 44 to 49. This is the second point this morning. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. When he, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so we don't know the exact time frame between verses 43 and 44, but it was sometime during the 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples between his resurrection and ascension. So it's some time frame in there. But Jesus fulfilled Scripture. He reminds his disciples that everything that happened to him while he was on earth was in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, which is the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And we see the third principle today. God keeps his word even when it involves things that seem impossible. God promised to send a Savior. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And he says this, I will put my enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And we know that the word Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus fulfilled that scripture. <clears throat> he is God the Son. And he came from heaven to earth, and he dwelt among his people for a period of time. 
Jesus is that Savior. He is alive. Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand Scripture. <clears throat> it's not that the disciples didn't know what Jesus was about to tell them. He, they'd heard it countless times, even more times than, than it's recorded in our Bibles. But they didn't make the connection. They're struggling to make that connection between Jesus and what was written in the Scriptures. So let me give you an illustration to help you a little bit. It's an electrical illustration. In an electrical circuit, all the components are there to have power. See, the one on the left has the switch open. The one on the right has the switch closed. There has to be a connection. In order for power to run through the circuit, the switch has to be engaged to completing the circuit. Otherwise, no electricity and no lights. And this is similar to what happened with the disciples. All the components were present for them to understand this. They had Jesus right there. They had the scriptures. It was all there, but the circuit had not been completed in the disciples' minds. The switch needed to be engaged. And when Jesus opened their minds, the switch was engaged, the circuit was completed, and the light came on, right? It's like, oh, we understand. Why didn't we see this before? And once the switch was flipped, Jesus reminded them of the past, and then he foretold the future. Now, it was the recent past. It was written... Uh, it was written about hundreds of years before, but the events had just happened days before. We see it written in Isaiah chapter 53. It talks about the fact that the Christ will suffer, that Christ will rise from the dead on the third day. And both of those things happened to Jesus. And then he begins to tell them about the future. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus was telling those disciples what they were going to be doing in the future. They would be uh, they would tell others what they had seen and heard concerning Jesus and his ministry. That's what it means to be a witness. We tell others what we've seen and what we've heard, whether it's in a court of law, whether it's in sharing the gospel. They were going to be spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world. And they had to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit before they began their mission. We see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, these words, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then we see these words in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then we know that Peter stood up right after this with the 11 and preached the gospel boldly to those that were still in Jerusalem. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Incredible. <laughs> and so here's how it applies to us today. Understanding God's word empowers us to witness. That's our big idea. And it leads us to principle four. The Holy Spirit gives us power to witness for Christ. The same power that the 11 experienced at Pentecost is living inside of every follower of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us when we repent and turn uh, from our sins and turn our lives over to Jesus Christ. The command and commission that Jesus, that Jesus gave to his disciples is for us today. We see the command in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will, not, will be condemned. And then the great commissions in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you, to the, with you always to the end of the age. Many of us fear, <clears throat> have fear about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, but remember, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to help us to share The Holy Spirit has opened our minds to Scripture, and with that understanding, we are empowered to witness for Christ. So maybe that third next step is for you today, and it's to ask the Lord to empower me through the Holy Spirit to be a witness of the gospel to someone this week. Just as way of review, do you need to recognize Jesus' omnipotence by crying out to him for help today? Do you need to rest in the fact that Jesus' presence brings peace? Will you repent of your sins today and turn to God for salvation? And as a body of believers, who will we witness to this week? Who will we pray for and then invite to the revival services on May 17th through the 23rd? As we just think about those review questions, I want to read this story for you in closing. It's from Philip Yancey. After years of urban living had ground down my childhood love of nature, I found it uh, suddenly rekindled through my friendship with a young photographer named Bob McQuilkin. I was working as a magazine editor at the time, and Bob seemed determined to drag me out of my stale routine and reintroduce me to the joyous world outside. Once Bob drove his Jeep to my office and insisted that I come uh, come with him to see two baby owls he'd just rescued. For months, he fussed over these scraggly orphaned owls, chasing barn mice and lizards to feed them, then trying to teach them to hunt on their own and to fly. Bob teaching a bird to fly? They'd fluttered, they'd, they'd fluttered in soaking wet from a rainstorm, not wise enough yet to find shelter, and Bob would patiently pull out his electric hair dryer and blow them dry. <laughs> Bob was a fully alive as anyone I'd ever known. And so when I heard in the fall of 2000 that Bob had died on a scuba diving assignment in Lake Michigan, I could hardly absorb the news. Bob? Dead? It was inconceivable. I could could picture Bob doing anything at all, anything but lying still. But that is my last image of him, a a 36-year-old body in a blue plaid flannel shirt lying in a casket. I would never ski with Bob again, never sit with him for hours viewing slides, never again eat rattlesnake meat or buffalo burgers at his house. Susan, his wife, asked me to speak at Bob's memorial service. Without a doubt, it was the hardest thing I have ever done. When I stood before them, the magazine editors and art directors and family and neighbors and friends, they reminded me of little birds, Bob's owls, with their mouths open, begging for food, begging for words of solace, for hope. What could I offer them? I began by telling them what I had been doing the very afternoon Bob was making his last dive. That Wednesday, I was sitting oblivious in a cafe at the University of Chicago reading The Quest for Beauty by Rollo May. In that book, the famous therapist recalls scenes from his long, lifelong search for beauty, among them a visit to Mount Athos, a peninsula of monasteries attached to Greece. One morning, Rollo May happened to stumble upon the celebration of Greek Orthodox Easter, the tail end of a church service that had been pro, uh, proceeding all night long. Incense hung in the air. The only light came from candles. And at the height of that service, the priest gave everyone present three Easter eggs, wonderfully decorated and wrapped in a veil. Christos Anestai, he said. Christ is risen. 
Each person there, including Rollo May, responded according to custom. He is risen indeed. Rollo May writes, I was seized then by a moment of spiritual reality that, uh, uh, that uh, reality. What would it mean for our world if he had truly risen? I read Rollo May's question the afternoon that Bob died, and it kept floating around in my mind hauntingly after I heard the news. What did it mean for our world that Christ had risen? Why were monks staying up all night to celebrate it? The early Christians had staked everything on the resurrection, so much so that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In the cloud of grief over Bob's death, I began to see the meaning of Easter in a new light. On Friday, Jesus' closest friends had let the relentless crush of history snuff out their dreams. Two days later, when the crazy rumors about Jesus' missing body shot through Jerusalem, they couldn't dare to believe. Only personal appearances by Jesus convinced them that something new, absolutely new, had broken out on the world. When that sank in, those same men who had slunk away in fear at Calvary were soon preaching to large crowds in the streets of Jerusalem. At Bob McQuilkin's funeral, I rephrased Rollo May's question in the terms of, it, of our own grief. What would it mean for us if Bob rose again? We were sitting in a chapel, numbed by three days of grief and sadness, the weight of death bearing down upon us. What would it be like to walk outside to the parking lot and there, to our utter astonishment, find Bob? Bob! With his bounding walk, his crooked grin, and clear gray eyes. <clears throat> that image gave me a hint of what Jesus' disciples felt on the first Easter. They, too, had grieved for three days, but on Sunday they caught a glimpse of something else, a startling clue to the riddle of the universe. Easter hits a new note, a note of hope and faith that what God did once in a graveyard in Jerusalem, he can and will repeat on a grand scale for the world, for Bob, for us. And see, those disciples, they understood. Their minds were opened by Jesus Christ to understand Scripture. The great thing is, is that our minds are open because of the Holy Spirit of God that lives within us to Scripture. <clears throat> and we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us to be witnesses. And so, understanding God's Word should lead us to being a witness for Him. I trust that you'll take that to heart today. And, and as I just close in prayer and as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you. We thank you that you are all-powerful, that your presence gives us peace, Lord God, when we are just struggling. Lord, we thank you, too, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real, that you came alive again, that you won over sin and over death, that we have a way to be in right relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that, that we would be your witnesses, that we wouldn't allow fear to stop us from sharing what we have seen and know about you. We just commit ourselves to you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final song this morning is... Number 151 in your hymnal, number 151, Look Ye Saints.